Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Will the grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here in worship and with all who are gathering with us online uh, from wherever it is that you are worshiping today. We welcome you. I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as we continue our ongoing series in the book of Ecclesiastes. But as you're finding your way there, uh, allow me just a moment of pastoral privilege for a couple of reasons. Uh, I love this day because this day, Father's Day, is a day that we all remember Bill Self. You may not know this, uh, and that's why we see all the seersuckers we see lots of suckers in this room, but there's a lot of seersuckers too. You may not know this, but this, this day, Father's Day, was the first day I worshiped with you and you didn't know it. I snuck in when we were discerning the call nearly 10 years ago. In fact, it was 10 years ago Father's Day. And I snuck in right back in the back and I heard Bill preach his traditional Father's Day sermon with the story from a, To Kill a Mockingbird, and, and I just take delight in this occasion every, every year. In fact, I didn't tell him I was going to say this, but I noticed Steve Wright this morning, I noticed you posted a copy of that very sermon from that very day on your Facebook page. We're going to get together after, and I'll see if we can put that on our church page so everyone can hear that uh, today. Oh, what a blessing that is. And seeing all the seersuckers, what I take special delight in is that Adam Courtney, because of the kindness of the Bowen family, delivered a seersucker shirt for him to wear with us today. Perfectly fitting for our contemporary worship leader to be part of the joy today. So uh, that's wonderful. I want to ask you to turn your attention with me to Ecclesiastes 4. And as we do, one more word of privilege. It's going to be probably 12 o'clock before I preach, Leslie, but um, I have a friend worshiping with us today, Nicole Washington. I didn't tell you I was going to call you out, but Nicole and her family are with us today. Nicole is a pastor, an entrepreneur, and a good friend uh, to, to me, and we are part of the Interfaith Alliance in Johns Creek. And so every month or so, we gather to dream up ways to do good and to share life with our diverse community. And so would you give her family a JCBC welcome here? Good to have you. All right. Okay, that's enough prolegomena, enough words before the words, now the words. From Ecclesiastes chapter uh, four, beginning in verse one. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I, I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who are already dead are happier than the living who are still alive. 
But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, chavel. It is meaningless, a a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is chevel, meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Will you pray with me? God, we have come into this moment from a thousand different directions and we have brought with us 10,000 different expectations. Some of us have come asking and seeking and knocking and some of us have come in barely expecting anything new. Our prayer today is that you would confound all of us That somehow through the reading and study of your word, your spirit would do something in us and to us and then ultimately through us that we cannot do alone. We pray now in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So in the sport of dog racing, It's not as popular as it once was years ago, but this is a a magnificent display of a magnificent animal, usually greyhound, sleek, slim, incredibly fast. Some could run up to 45 miles an hour or more, second only to the cheetah as the fast, second fastest land mammal on the planet. They line up in these cages and when a buzzer goes off, they take off and race one another, but they're, They're not like horses. Unlike horse racing where there's a jockey that can control and guide them in alignment in the same direction, dogs don't have little jockeys on the backs of them. And so they chase a mechanical rabbit that is on an inside track around the the racing track and it's controlled by a man in a a booth 
who controls the speed of the rabbit. It's not a real rabbit. It's a, it's a mechanical rabbit. It's a box of you know, nuts and bolts and springs and, and, and circuits covered with rabbit skin. So little bunny foo-foo, little bunny cyborg. A few years ago, at a racetrack in Florida, the dogs were lined up behind the cages the crowd finally put their last bets down on the winner. The buzzer went off, the gates flung open, the dogs took off down the track. They made it down the first stretch and as they were making it around the first bend, something went wrong. Mechanically, there was an engineering failure, a shortage, and little bunny cyborg came to a screeching halt and exploded in flames. The dogs didn't know what to do. Some of them just laid down on the track with their tongues out. Two of them crashed into the wall breaking ribs. One of them ran in circles chasing his tail. One of them hiked his leg on a nearby post and the rest just howled at the crowd. Chaos, bewilderment, disappointment. And the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us about a man named Kohelet who says, I have had a race like that. I have chased after meaning and pleasure and delight and satisfaction in a thousand different directions and from every conceivable source. And at the end of every race, I can tell you that I've looked for satisfaction in pleasures, I've looked for it in relationships, I've looked for it in my career, I've looked for it in becoming wise in the reading of books, and yet at the end of all these races, it is, in his word in Hebrew, hevel. It's like grabbing smoke that slips between your fingers. It's like trying to embrace vapor. It's like the chasing of wind. And all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, he speaks about the different ways that we chase after meaning that ultimately always end in disappointment and chaos. And in chapter four, he tells us about a particular kind of chevel, a particular kind of painful chevel that I'm just gonna describe this way, the human experience of loneliness. Loneliness. But there are some pursuits that we make in this life in attempting to find satisfaction that ultimately leave us lonely, isolated, detached from anyone and anything that can offer meaning. And I, I wanna talk about that this morning because I promise you someone has gathered here in this room or is watching right now online and you have experienced an abject aloneness. And you've looked for connection and meaning and community in every conceivable direction and you feel as if you are helpless. And by some miracle of God, you have come into this conversation and I want you to hang with me for just a moment or two because Kohelet goes into depth describing the ways that our pursuits can be chevel but he doesn't leave us drowning in the water of our loneliness. By the end he gives us a solution. He brings us a word of hope that if we hear it and we allow ourselves to be embraced by it may change everything today. 
But before we get to the solution, you know me, we're gonna, we're gonna have to go around the barn to get to the chickens, right? So in order to talk about the solution, we're gonna have to talk about two or three things first. First, I wanna talk about French bread, three dog night, and a cord of three strands. French bread, three dog night, and a cord of three strands. First, French bread. You know, a couple weeks ago, many of you know we got back from a trip to France. Laura's culinary arts students, she takes the students every year to some country to experience the science, the gastronomy, the construction of food, and the arrangement of food in the different cultures around the world. And this year we were in France and we ate a lot of bread. I'm talking croissants, I'm talking baguettes, I'm talking France is not a keto-friendly environment. (laughs) And I remembered as we were there in France, some of the old French that I took, uh, don't know much about the French I took, but I did in France, it kind of came back a little bit, And, and I remembered that the word for bread is a word, what is it? Pain, P-A-I-N, certainly didn't taste like pain, it tasted great, it's pain. But do you know what? Pan is also another, it's part of another word that's familiar to us. It's the heart or the root of another word, companion. Calm, meaning with or together. Community, calm, together, with. Pan, bread. A companion is one with whom you break bread. A companion is one with whom you share the sustenance of life. A companion is one with whom you share the fuel of being alive together. And I want to say to every single one of us gathered here in this moment that you were created for companionship. And I say that regardless of your marital status or, or the potential future of your marital status or not, you as a human being were created for companionship. Do you know that the earliest stories that we have in the sacred book are the stories about our creation? Two in particular, two beautiful poetic expressions of how we came into existence. And the first one in chapter one ends with this this good news. Everything God creates, God creates something and says, that's good. Creates something else and says, that's good. Oh, and that's good, and the other thing's good, and this other thing is good. And at the end of chapter one, which is written in a very orderly fashion, very symmetrical, beautiful way, at the end it culminates with the creation of the human beings. And God says, now it's very good. But it's a little different than chapter two, the second of our creation stories. It is written by another source, it's not the priestly source, but a Yahwist source, those who are earthy, gritty, very tactile. So you have a picture of God kneeling down into the mud, and in the mud, God scoops out of the clay, the Adama. He scoops out of the Adama, the Adam. And then off to off, nostril to nostril, blows the breath of life and this Adam becomes a living soul and then he puts the Adam in the middle of this garden with a royal responsibility. You are to till and to keep the garden. You are to take responsibility for the care of this thing that I have made and you will be with me a co-creator. I will create and you will name the things that I have created. And God steps back and unlike the first creation story where everything is good, 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 very good, 
God sees something for the very first time that is not good. And in verse eight, we read these words. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner, the very first ungood thing in our story is aloneness. So God creates one to rescue the one from being alone. Now often we think about the stories of Adam and Eve as the first couple, right? First married couple, and that's fine, that's appropriate. But it's not just about a married couple, it's about the first of our species. And it is not good for any in our species to be alone. Sometimes a language lesson will help a little bit. The word that's used there for helper has sometimes been misinterpreted and even abused over the years. The word in Hebrew is etzer. Etzer literally means helper. But in Hebrew, it, it technically means one who comes to the rescue of. Let all of my sisters say amen. Yeah. One who comes to the rescue of. In the Hebrew Bible, the word etzer appears 21 times. And 15 out of the 21 times that the word etzer, rescuer, appears, it's in reference to God. This second person that was made was made Godlike, to come to the rescue of the alone one. And I say that, I camp out here while we're in this neighborhood of Genesis for just a minute to, to sometimes iron out some wrinkles that that fabric collects over the years. Because it's often assumed that because women are made second in the story, they're subjugated, less than, an afterthought, when in reality they are the rescuers of our species. And some have interpreted this as, well, she comes second, so therefore, and yet, yet, the word for man and the one for woman, male and female, is the same root word, ish and isha. The image is of a, a, a potter at the potter's wheel making something out of the adama, out of the clay, and decides to take from the same project not, not different material, not other material, not less than material, from the same material to make another one. From the ish comes the isha. And some have said, well, because the woman is made second, she is subject to the man. But I will remind you, the subjugation and hierarchical relationships where people are stacked on top and below, that doesn't enter into the story until chapter three, after the fall the design in God's mind is of mutual value, mutual worth. And of course, I love what has been said. Well, because she was taken from the rib, she is less than. But I love what was said one place. God took the clay not from the man's head so that the woman would rule over him and not from the man's foot so that he would walk upon her but took it from his side so that into perpetuity they would walk side by side as mutual etzers, rescuers, companions with one another. You were created for companionship. And this is why Kohelet, in the chapter that we're studying, the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes, this is why Kohelet rails against aloneness. 
and he speaks about it. He, he talks about there are ways that we can pursue meaning and if we're not careful, we could end up more lonely than before, which takes us from Fritch bread to three dog night. Because it was the great theological school, three dog night, that told us that one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. But you know what else they said? Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. Now think about that line from that great, that great hit of 1969. Because as I think about what Kohelet is trying to tell us, yes, two are better than one, but depending on how you manage the relationship you have with the other, depending on how you relate to the others, you could end up in a place more lonely than before. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do, but two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. Listen to how he puts it. No, and that's, yeah, it's not Kohelet, but yeah, the next one, yeah. In chapter four, but yeah. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the, the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. The power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I, I declared that the dead who are already who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. What is he saying? Kohelet is saying, look, I've seen and made some observations about the way life is structured, and we live in a world where there are individuals or groups of individuals or even systems that stack people. And I've seen the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. That's very clear, very obvious. But I've also seen the oppressors, and they have no one to comfort them. And you know, that makes sense to me. And to any of us who have lived in the suburbs of North Atlanta long enough, do you know it's possible to have access to every kind of resource you would imagine? To have all the power all the decision-making authority, all the resource, the privilege, the access, and at the same time, be the loneliest person in the room. I want you to think about business owners who build empires and yet, because they are so powerful and successful, very few want to actually know them. It can be, as they say, lonely at the top. I want you to think about elite athletes or celebrities who everyone gets the impression that they know because they see their work, their performance, and yet can be more isolated than any. Kohelet says, I've seen those on the bottom, and yes, lonely, oppressed, there is, there's no one to comfort them, but those on the top can also be as lonely with no one to help. And do you know, it can even be true with pastors <laughs> On this day that I think about Bill Self, I think about the great chapter in his book, Surviving the Stained Glass Jungle, where he says, you know, sometimes the loneliest person in the sanctuary would surprise you. Sometimes the loneliest person in the sanctuary, Pastor Nicole, is the pastor. 
Because everyone seems to imagine, well, that person must have friendships lined down the door. Look how public that person's job is. Well, she, she knows everyone. He, he has access to everyone, but it might not be the case. And Kehelet says, yeah, yeah. No matter how you think you are stacked in this world, Hevel comes to all of us. He gives another example. He says, it's not only in how you manage your relationships and how you find yourself stacked somehow on the ladder of life. It also happens, as he says in verse maybe four, and I saw that all the toil and all the achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about the comparison trap. How we have a tendency to compare our interior value and worth to someone else's exterior projection of what they've put together. And anytime you you compare your interior to somebody else's exterior, Chevel is chasing after the wind because you never know the whole story. Robert came into my office when I was in Richmond, Virginia, and I was just a part-time youth pastor. I mean, I didn't, know, I didn't know anything at that time. I barely know more than that now. He came in, Robert was a, an extremely well-known, successful entrepreneur, uber wealthy, successful, respected by everyone. He had built an empire. He came in and I think to test me. He said, pastors are supposed to be able to hold confidences, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, I've got a secret to tell you. I took a deep breath and I said, Lord, help me. I don't, and he said, it's all gone. I said, what's all gone? All of it. The money is gone. I lost all of it. It is no more. My family doesn't know. My wife doesn't know. My partners don't know. And every day I wake up And my work every day is to prop up the illusion that it's all fine and it's so very much not fine. And I'm barely hanging on. When you compare your interior to what you perceive to be the exterior of another, if you order your relationships in life where the other is simply the representation of all that you don't have, it's hevel. You're chasing the wind because you don't know The whole story is like the man who works at the factory and part of his job was to ring the whistle when it was time to change the shifts. And so he'd ring the whistle and then the shift would change and and some would come to work and some would go home. But every day on his way to work, he would stop at this storefront where they, they sold these clocks and there's this gorgeous grandfather clock and he would set his watch according to this clock because it kept perfect timing. And so he would go to work and do his thing and get off and come back the next day and do the same thing. One day the shop owner stops him and says, I notice that you stop here every day on your way to work. What are you doing? He said, well, I noticed that your clock keeps the best time. And so I, I set my watch according to that, that, that clock you have in the window. And he said, well, isn't that odd? Because I set that clock according to the whistle that I hear at the factory. <laughs> and a 
around and around we go, chasing the chevel, hoping that there is more to it than there really is. This is why when we compare ourselves to others, it, we dupe ourselves. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians. He put it this way. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they do not show good sense. The third example he gives and how we sometimes misuse our relationships with others. Some of us stack others beneath us so that somehow we might have power and affluence and influence and, and, and access to resource. We stack people and we oppress them only to find ourselves equally oppressed with no one to share life with, no etzer to come to our rescue. And, and not only do we do that, but we also compare ourselves with one another and, and it's all illusion. But he said the third example is, we read about it here in verse seven. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, chevel, a miserable business. He's talking about those of us who at times can be married to our work who assume that the greatest value of a relationship that we can invest in is the relationship we have with our work. And so we are wed to our work and we act as if we are not made to be human beings but human doings and there's nothing wrong with finding meaning in our work. In fact, that's how we talk about finding our vocational calling, right? Is that you, you realize that your deep gladness somewhere intersects a deep need in the world. And that deep gladness and the world's deep need is where you're called to serve. There's nothing wrong with finding meaning in your work. But if the height of the expectation you have to be in relationship with another is your job, then what would it gain to have the whole world and no one with whom to share the fruit of all that work. So, Kohelet says there are three ways. And, and you and I know these are just three ways. There are a thousand ways loneliness emerges and 10,000 ways in which it gets expressed or manifest in our own lives. But he doesn't just leave us drowning in the water that is consuming us here. He gives us a life raft. This is what he says. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm Alone, I sometimes try that line on Laura. Like, Maybe we need to cuddle. I mean, how can one keep warm alone? And she's like, I'm a 48-year-old woman. I'm warm all the time. I'm just, you know, she's like, but that's another sermon altogether. Where are, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I love that image. A cord of three strands is not easily or quickly broken. Now there's been a lot of discussion about what he means by that, a cord of three strands. And if I had time to preach today about it, I would. 
I mean, if I had the time today, I would tell you that the three-stranded cord could be your interior life and that you were made to have head, heart, and gut. That means a healthy, well-rounded person in the image of God is one who knows how to think, do, and feel. And some of us do, we overdo the thinking and some of us overdo the feeling and some of us overdo the doing. And maybe the three-stranded cord is to somehow let Christ develop us until we are balanced in the Trinitarian nature in which we are created but since I don't have time to preach that, I won't. If I had time to preach this morning, I might say a word about, this is about marriage. I could, I could say that when you marry a spouse, it's not, it's not just that two become one, that's true too, but two become three, because if you bind your marriage with the love of Christ, then Christ is the third strand in your three-stranded cord that will not easily or quickly be broken. I could talk about that if I had the time, but I don't have the time, so I won't. Or I could talk about what it means to be a part of an active faith life. If I had the time, I might say that the three-stranded cord is you, your church family, and Christ, the Lord of the church. See, we could preach all day long this one verse, but since we don't have the time, how about I move on to what Kohelet actually suggests? Because if you heard it a moment ago, he actually slips in the three strands that he would recommend that we make our three-stranded cord out of. He says, sometimes you fall down. And if there are two, two are better than one because if one falls down, the other can help them out. And I call that the strand of accountability. Is there someone in your life who is accountable to you? Do you know someone with whom you share no secrets? And that means they know all the dirt on you and you know all the dirt on them. You both know where the bodies are buried. The strand of accountability where you can depend on someone when you fall and can they depend on you when they fall? Like the man who was walking down the street, I love this story and you know I do because I've told it a hundred times here, but on Father's Day, when Bill Self tells the same story every year, I think I can get by with it. Here it is, the man's walking down the street and he falls into a hole and he's yelling to those on the street, help me out, I'm falling into a hole. A doctor walks by, hey doc, can you help me out here? Writes a prescription and drops it in the hole. He looks up and sees the pastor walk by and says, hey, hey, pastor, I've fallen in a hole. Can you help me out? He writes out a beautiful prayer and drops it in the hole. Ultimately, he sees, he sees his friend walk by. And he says, hey, Harry, it's me, Bob. I've fallen into a hole. Can you help me out? And Harry jumps in the hole with him. He said, what, what, are you out of your mind, Harry? Now we're both stuck down here. But Harry says, no, Bob, listen, it's okay because... I've been in this hole before and I know the way out. Do you know someone who is willing to jump into the hole with you and stand with you until you figure the way out? That is the strand of accountability. But then he also says, how can two, or how can one remain warm? Two can lie together and be warmed with one another. I call this the strand of compassion. Because the root of the word compassion is passio. Passio means suffering. Calm together, suffering. To suffer together with. Do you know someone who is willing to suffer with you? To feel your pain. And do you know someone you are willing to suffer alongside in their pain? 
He also says the third chord. Well, it's, it's like the, the one who, well, he's walking along and, and, and he's threatened and by himself he can't defend himself. But if there are two, two can defend easier than one. I call that the, the strand of solidarity. Do you know someone who is willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with you through the fire? Do you know someone who has your back, is willing to wade through waters they can't navigate themselves, but since you're in it, they're in it too? See, I'm talking about a a cord of three strands of accountability, of compassion, of solidarity, but maybe you're hearing me say these words, you know, that's exactly what I want. Yeah, but you don't understand, Sean, I've been looking for that kind of accountability and friendship and, 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 and companionship my whole life and I don't know where to find it. So you're, you're describing the water here that I'm drowning in. So here's my suggestion to you. Can you become that which you long to receive? Can you become accountable to see another when they are falling into the hole? Can you become compassionate, willing to suffer alongside someone else, even if it's none of your business? Can you become one who stands in solidarity with the oppressed, the marginalized, those who are forgotten and lonely? Because if you can order your life after the one who showed us how to do that, then in the Christ way of living, You become friends. Jesus said, I call you servants no longer. I call you my friends because I've shown you everything the Father has shown me. And beloved, if you're here this day and and you've been longing for some kind of connection, I just want you to know that while at times we, we do a broken job of it, while at times we do a diminished version of it, you realize this is what the church is intended to be. The community of followers of Jesus who see in one another the things that Jesus would see in us. That means we recognize those who are broken and lonely and hurting and we stand in solidarity with them. We have said here for a long time that we are an imperfect people with unfinished stories and we can stroll onto campus any, any given Sunday and behave in here just like everyone else behaves outside of here And we can see each other as a threat. We can maneuver and posture ourselves with one another and stack some high and stack some low. We can come in here and not even see the humanity that is sitting on our right and our left. Or we can remember our creational commission to be at Sarah rescuers of one another to let the Christ who is in me see the Christ who is in you and the Christ who is in you see the Christ who is in another and when the Christ who is in me sees the Christ in you then the space between us is holy ground.